Paz I Am Radio with your co-hosts Robert Brining and Aaron Laxton. We go around the world and across the United States. Join in the conversation by calling in to 929-477-3572. That's 929-477-3572. This week, we have your HIV scoop with Josh Robbins and your positive message from Rise Up to HIV and Kevin Maloney. Your weekly dose of hope. Pause I Am Radio. I hope you're ready for season two because it starts now. Happy Sunday afternoon, everyone. It is a great day. Uh, it is the opening day. Pause I Am Radio. Holy cow. Anytime you get me on repeat, that's a scary thing. It's the opening day of baseball, so wherever you are, uh, be sure to check out um, your local baseball team, although we all know that St. Louis is the best. Aaron Langston in St. Louis, Missouri, alongside my amazing and uh, just fabulous uh, co-host, Robert Brining. How are you doing, sir? I am doing well, Aaron. 60 degrees here in sunny Philadelphia. No more snow, no more ice. The rain will be coming tomorrow, but it's a it's a beautiful day here in Philly. I'm excited for today's show and today's guest. Yeah, he's not too he's, fond of uh, opening day, though. <laughs> but, you know, I know he's been on the show a couple times. Uh, always a good uh, uh, good time talking with him and hearing kind of things that he's doing. I know that he just had a, twi- a trip to Tijuana, uh, Mexico, um, kind of talking about the U equals U. Um, project that we've been hearing a lot about from Bruce in the last week uh, from Bob Leahy. So it'll be it'll be really um, fun to hear kind of his take and what he's doing. Um, so I'm, this week I had to follow your steps and I got a new car. Got a, it's a newer, newer car. I know, I know. Same There's with nothing me. better <laughs> than getting a newer car. Yes. It's pretty great. It's good to treat it's yourself. Sometime. Really, the only—it's the only time my car's clean. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> and, so it's always like a is your car is your car filled with like uh, tons of like poster boards and markers and and paperwork and envelopes and <laughs> oh, it is and like needles and just miscellaneous social work stuff. So um, when I dropped it off at the dealership, the uh, the owner of the dealership he. He was helping me, and he, I've actually bought my last six cars from a uh, shameless plug for him. If you're in St. Louis, Missouri, Dean Team Automotive, be sure to check them out. Um, but uh, he's like, I can tell you're a social worker. And uh, But, yeah, so it's, it's just a couple years. It's a 2015, um, and it had less mileage than my old car. Um, but a sign that I'm getting older is that this thing is mm-hmm. so high tech that it, it took me a few minutes to just figure out how to work like the technology on it. What kind of car did you get? So it's uh, so I had a 2013 Passat and uh, now I have a 2015 Passat. Okay, so, so you like the Volkswagens? I do. My last six cars have been VWs. So I'm any of them punch loyal. buggies. Uh, is, is that what is that? <laughs> Were any of them the Beatles? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. I got it. I'm all floating. No, no, no. None of them were. But I definitely would drive one. Like, if I could get my hands, if you're out there listening today and you have a microbus that you want to unload, call me. Um, because I think a microbus would be absolutely not only the gayest thing out there, um, but it would just be generally, like, fantastic, I think. <laughs> No, I know yeah. my car is really high tech inside and everything, and I, st- I've had it for a month. Uh, it'll be a month tomorrow that I've had the new car, and I still don't know how to do things. I still can't figure out the GPS. I just don't have time. Like I never have time to just sit in my car and play with it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? To figure well, it all out states, because it's so complicated. In some states, sitting in your car and playing with it will get you in trouble. So just just be careful. <laughs> That's about that. most states. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you oh, can 
in both of our cities. It's just it's this euphoria is passing over us. Yes, it's it's it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice. Well, I'm glad to see that you you upgraded, got a new car. I mean, it's important for, to treat yourselves. And sometimes, you know, we're so busy living life, working, and trying to change the world that we forget to treat ourselves sometimes. So good for you. You deserve it, Aaron. You do a lot of good work. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 nice. Uh, and it's also, you know, I never want to be in a car that's like a death trap. So, um, yeah, I'm very fortunate. I got my yeah. grant turned in. So some of the followers and you've been kind of tracking. I've been working on that for the last three months. And, and on Friday, I was able to put that in the mail. And uh, so we'll find out about their grant in May. But it is a load taken off my back for real. Now, you've been writing, you've been working on that grant for a while, right? Yeah, for the last three months I've been writing writing on it. So How difficult is that? Uh, See, like that's something I've never really uh, got into, like uh, grants and grant writing and things like that. Never really learned too much about. But how difficult is that to write a grant for uh, to change something? It's uh, it can be challenging. This one was particularly challenging because it's a, a federal grant and they have a lot of things that they want. Um, it was they don't all the the application was about 75 pages and you know you should have to be able to write the narrative in such a way that it tells a story and includes you know all the data they want um, and then fully describes like what you're doing so uh, I've written other grants so right now I also have a needle exchange grant that I wrote through AIDS United that was awarded um, through the Elton John AIDS Foundation shout out to them um, and we're on year two of that and that was difficult but that was only like you know a six or seven page grant application as compared to you know a 75 page um, uh, federal grant so I never really got into it to write grants I've always been a grant reviewer so I've done that since 2008 um, you know new experience and and now we kind of see where where the road takes us you know change is good sometimes well go Good luck. It seems like you put a lot of work into that, and um, you know, I hope everything goes well with it. I hope it. When do they? I guess they get accepted. Is that how it, how it works? Yeah. Well, uh, we'll do a, get the grant awarded, and if we don't, then you know, as an agency, we'll have to kind of rework. It's a half million dollar grant, so um, it would definitely be a big loss if we if we lost it for sure. So, so if if it gets rejected, do you have to go back to the drawing board and try to rewrite the grant a different way, or or is it something that no, you if just we kind of start if over? If we don't get the grant, then we should. Yeah, if we don't get the grant, we just don't get the grant. Um, and then, you know, we can look at under other funding sources. But um, yeah, this is just one of those things. So if you try once, you don't get it, then you you're out of it until the next funding announcement, which you know would be in a couple of years. Nice. The nonprofit life, man. Oh, good luck. <laughs> so um, I'm excited uh, for today's guest. We're going to be speaking with Joshua Middleton. Um, as Aaron spoke a little bit earlier, he was actually on our show uh, last season, and he was actually the last show that we did um, live, and it was in 2014. I believe it was in January. Um, and, you know, he came on and, and shared his story, and I, I believe then he was only a little under two years diagnosed, so he's returning now with five years diagnosis, um, so we'll be bringing him on in a few minutes. Um, he is also the founder of PositiveHope.com. Uh, is it right? I just want to make sure I get it right. It is PositiveHope.com, yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't .org, so we'll be speaking with him. First, I want to go ahead over to uh, Josh Robbins and get this week's HIV scoop. This is your HIV Scoop with Josh Robbins, exclusive for Paws I Am Radio. Buzzworthy HIV news in under 90 seconds. Here's Josh Robbins in this week's HIV Scoop. Well, hello, boys. How are you? All doing. We had a great AIDS watch in D.C. this week. Just, it was just great. Just love it, love it, love it. 
All right. The National Institutes of Health has awarded the researchers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a three-year, $1.8 million grant for the development of a new implantable drug delivery system that steadily releases PrEP over long periods of time. Now, there are other uh, long-acting injectable drug formulations for PrEP that are being studied and tested in clinical trials, right? Um, However, the limitation on those is that once it is injected into the body, it can't be removed. And that's a problem because if someone has some type of adverse reaction, they need to be able to get it out. Well, this study is the one that will allow it to be removed if needed. The CDC is going to assist the research team with the testing of the injectable implant, which they hope will provide up to three months of protection. Very cool. Now, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, she has given President Donald Trump hell. You know what I mean? For his proposed budget, which slashes the NIH budget by $1.2 million. She also drew attention to the proposed cuts of nearly $350 million to the United States President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, and HIV AIDS programs, warning, quote, President Trump's proposed reduction to PEPFAR and other HIV AIDS programs would be a, quote, humanitarian catastrophe, end quote. You know, Bob Lee, she will go to bat for us, won't she? She's just awesome. She's a hero. I'm Josh Robbins. This was the HIV Scoop. Thank you, Josh Robbins. And for more information on Josh, you can go to imstilljosh.com. Yeah, that's kind of uh, one of his uh, scoop uh, kind of falls under what the hell is he doing this week? Uh, you know, him trying to possibly slash $350 million from, you know, AIDS research. That's, that's kind of like, what the hell? Considering he was, yeah. it wasn't just last week he promised that he was going to uh, save, you know, the, the HIV research and all that? Well, I think it's part of a bigger problem. So this week we have seen, uh, you know, LGBT people were stripped off of the uh, White House website within like the first 24 hours. The most recent right, thing I remember that. this week was um, they have removed LGBT people from. So, you know, who is impacted by HIV AIDS? Well, it's people who identify as LGBT or non-conforming. And so it's really part of this ideology that's losing the White House. Um, Yeah, I mean, some people were posting me or tagging me on Facebook about the different budget things. It it does have to go for approval. So, but yeah, NIH faces... um, a lot of budget cuts. I, I thought I saw numbers to billion dollars uh, in in overall budget cuts. Um, so we'll see. I, I hope not because they do a lot of important research, not just for HIV, but but for other uh, health conditions as well. Well, will you both stay tuned on that, and hopefully we'll get some more information from Josh as it as it's released. So I want to go ahead and bring today's guest on, Joshua Middleton, is the founder of PositiveHope.com. Um, he was diagnosed a little under five years ago. Um, he's returning to give us a little bit of a, I guess, of an update of what's going on. He's been a very busy man, like you said earlier. He's involved with the U equals U a little bit. He was, you said he was in Tijuana, did you say? Yeah, let's, uh, he was over, and he didn't talk more about that, but I believe they were in Tijuana. Well, that's incredible. I can't wait to hear more about that. You know, he was somebody who thought he wasn't in a high-risk group because he was a heterosexual male, and one day finds himself HIV positive. So let's hear his story. Joshua Middleton, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Good, good yourself. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're on. Oh. Okay, perfect. You're on. How yeah, are you? I'm doing good. But, um, so well, we're excited so, uh, to have you. Go ahead, Aaron. You can start. Well, I was talking to say you were oh, yeah, in Tijuana, sorry. right? I didn't. I didn't read your your Facebook wrong, right? You were over there uh, talking about U equals U. Yes. Yeah. We did a uh, U equals U um, talk with a, one of the local HIV agencies there, and then uh, after doing that, then they invited us to come back and hopefully in the future, uh, be given a talk at the local men's prison there, um, as well as inviting out the uh, families that are affected, as well as the couples that are affected, Um, because obviously it's a pretty big revolution for not only people living with HIV, but for 
you know, our, our partners and our families and, you know, it's just uh, big news all the way around. So I was in TJ. I live about uh, an hour north of the southern border with Mexico. Um, so, yeah, we went down to TJ and, and shared the message there, and it was really well received. Well, that's that's really awesome. What um, I, you know, we always want to start in the very beginning for for individuals. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know, and a lot of our listeners maybe have tuned into past shows, but for those who maybe haven't heard your story, can you talk a little bit about your diagnosis and the beginning? You know, kind of how you how everything started. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, in 2010, um, just to give a little bit of a background before my diagnosis, I came down with necrotizing fasciitis. I came up with an the ocean. So necrotizing fasciitis, it's the flesh-eating bacteria, pretty much uh, it's a very fatal thing. And so I went to the hospital, um, went through surgery, went to septic shock. I was hospitalized for like two years after that, like over 30 times so it was pretty crazy but that's why i was seeing a uh, infectious disease doctor i was during that time dating a girl um, that i had known for a while from doing orphanage work down in uh, mexico and i was dating her and everything was going fine or so i thought um, however it was a long distance relationship so that made things a little bit difficult and i ended up finding out that she had cheated and when I found out the first time, I'm like, all right, you know, I'll stick around. Maybe it was just a fluke. I'll, you know, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt and we'll try to move on past this. And then when she did it the second time, I'm like, well, I can't keep staying around. Otherwise, I'm just going to end up in the same position again. So I decided to end the relationship. When that happened, I lost sight of uh, what to do. I knew it was the right thing to do to break up. I mean, my, uh, how I was feeling at the time, I felt like, we wouldn't be able to move on past the cheating. Um, so I was like, all right. So but I didn't really know how to move forward. And from there, I pretty much just went on a month long time of partying and lots of fun times. I really don't remember too much, <laughs> but you know, a lot of the times I, I wasn't using protection. I wasn't thinking. Um, and I went in for a follow-up with my infectious disease doctor um, for my leg to make sure everything was going fine with my leg. A week prior, I'd done an HIV test. I did one every single year. I figured, hey, you know, she cheated. I've been putting myself in some risky situations. Plus, you know, it's about that time of the year, so I might as well get it done. Didn't hear back from him. And that's when my doctor said, you know, don't you kind of find it rare that he didn't call you back? And I was like, no, you know, it's a good point, but I'll, I'll call them after we get out of here. And uh, that's since they're interconnected through the same medical network, uh, they are able to inter they're able to share information. And that's when he told me, well, I have your diagnosis. And, you know, I was diagnosed positive that day, uh, June uh, 5th of 2012. So it's almost five years coming up. That's incredible. That's like the a day off from you, isn't it, Ari? Uh, a day and a year. Yeah, so it's a day in a year. 2011. Yeah. Right. And I was actually the day I diagnosed, I think it was like a month after PrEP came out. Yeah. And so I was pretty like bummed out. I'm like, after, you know, I started getting educated and, and getting involved in advocacy and stuff. I'm like, man, I was like, I missed it by like a month. Like if I would have been able to you know, not that my doctor most likely would have put me on anyways because I wasn't considered in a high-risk group. But if I would have educated myself beforehand, then I would have, you know, kept bugging them until I got it. And, you know, but at the same time, I can't go back and change the wheels of time, you know. So, but yeah, it's interesting, coincidental how the dates fall. <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that you spoke about last time you were on the show is how you... uh kind of told your family and your friends. And if I, if I remember correctly, you went to work right away after your, your doctors, after you were diagnosed, right? I did. Yeah, I went to work. I I kind of wanted to distract myself, you know, and so I went to work after and and tried to think and, and you, my, Did time. you start telling people yeah. then? I did. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
the only people I didn't tell is obviously my, my our clients because I worked in bail and we got people out of jail. So you know, the last thing I want to do is tell them about my problems. But you know, at the same time, I did start telling all my coworkers right after I got diagnosed. Um, I don't. I think it was kind of like I did an interview a couple of weeks ago. And I kind of described it as like a gunshot reaction because um, I don't think I really yeah. thought about it. Like, hey, how are people going to react? Like, I kind of just like this is a lot to handle. I was like, I need to talk to somebody. <laughs> so um, luckily everybody was pretty receptive. Um, obviously they had a lot of questions, some of which I couldn't answer. Um, but, you know, I, I started telling everybody from the get go and then I went home that night and I wasn't going to, I was kind of on about it, but I made the decision to tell my parents that same night too. Um, definitely a little bit more thought went into that process. Uh, telling the parents, uh, coworkers, I'm like, hey, you know, they don't like me, whatever. I don't have to see them that often. But, you know, parents, some of the, you know, in many cases, some of the people that are closest to someone in their life, um, you know, it, it was difficult. But, you know, I made the decision to tell them that night as well. And that's incredible because, you know, you like you said, you they showed you compassion and support for the most part. I want to talk about the, the difficult phone call you had to make to call your ex-girlfriend after you were diagnosed, okay. how did that roll for you? Because I know that's something that a lot of people who are newly diagnosed struggle with calling people who you may have been, you know, involved with, you know, when you may have been diagnosed before you were diagnosed. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when I, I waited until I got the confirmatory results because I was holding out hope as many people who are newly diagnosed do that, you know, I'm in that one in a million chance that, you know, it came out of false positive or something. That's not the exact statistic, but it's a very rare chance that happens. But I was holding on to that hope, you know. But eventually when I got the confirmatory test results from the Western blot, I decided, hey, it's time to, you know, give her a call and look what's going on. And I figured that at that point we had already been broken up for like five months. She, you know, we'd had a pretty bad breakup and stuff like that. So, you know, I figured how much matter could she get? Um, you know, so I, but at least I wanted to call and give her the respect and give her that um, uh, information because I didn't really know if it came from her or if it came from somebody else. But in reality, most of the other girls I hooked up with were one night stands. So I, was many times under the influence of alcohol. I, I barely knew the person's name, let alone met up with them, you know, on a frequent basis, have their number and stuff like that. So when my doctor told me, Hey, call everybody within the last six months, I'm like, okay, well, that's easy. I got one number. Um, you know, so I, I gave her a call and when I called her, it was difficult because I didn't know how she was going to react. She comes from a very conservative family. Um, and I talked to her and, I let her know, like, it was very, very hard to get the words out at first, just even, you know, just saying that I am HIV positive when you're first diagnosed is extremely difficult. You know, it's just, it's just four words, but they have such an impact that, you know, you know, that, that has a power to, you know, cause someone to completely freak out, you know, and so I, I, when I told her that I had, I had a very hard time getting it out, but when it finally did come out, you know, it was like a relief. It was the beginning of me accepting like, Hey, this is who I am. This is, you know, not who I am, but this is what's part of me now. And so she, I have the best, um, as many partners, um, don't, I mean, she wasn't that educated on HIV at all. Um, she kind of let out like this, blood-curdling scream that I had nightmares about for years to follow um, because it was kind of like a, uh, a scream of like sheer terror like like you just told someone like the whole world's gonna end and all their family had just been killed or something you know like something horrible mm -hmm. and that's what you would have thought from hearing that scream you know I was like oh my god so you know because I knew if she was the one that gave it to me then she didn't know her status because I knew she had never been tested so yeah, it, it was difficult. We, I talked to her for, you know, maybe three, four minutes after that, trying to calm her down. Um, she ended up dropping the phone and her aunt got on the phone and, you know, then she started talking to me and yelling at me and, and pretty much said, well, I'll go take her to get tested. And, but it was extremely difficult, but 
I feel like it was, um, I felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, for other people in that situation, I just, you know, suggest taking some deep breaths and, and realizing the person might not try to imagine how the person's going to react. Not everybody's going to react how my ex reacted. Um, you know, some people might be a little bit more understanding. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're dealing with people with different education levels, different perceptions of what HIV is, and and we're still trying to learn in the beginning of a diagnosis what it means to live with HIV, you know. So it, it was difficult, but uh, I feel it was, uh, you know, necessary. One of the uh, things we talk about on the show with people is their, like, aha moment the moment when you realized that you were going to take control of the virus. I know uh, you shared a little bit about this last time you were on, but can you tell us a little bit about that moment when you decided like, Hey, I'm going to go public and this is going to be something that's going to, you know what I mean? Like you, you were going to be positive hope. Like explain that, how you went from being diagnosed, newly diagnosed and depressed to now being doing a 180 flip and taking control of the virus and actually promoting, you know, and sharing your story. I feel it was after watching several advocates videos, um, one in particular, Maria Mejia, um, she's a big, uh, international activist and everything. And after seeing her videos, I really was stunned that, you know, somebody would have that type of courage and could, and could do that, um, and share their story and, and be able to help make a, a difference in other people's lives. Um, when I, joined us she invited me to an online support group which i helped moderate today uh, international place for people living with hiv and aids and those that love us um you know i had a lot of questions i didn't know where i'd gotten it from um so that that was a hard thing and i i wanted to know who because you know a lot of times we want to blame the somebody else and not take the responsibility for it and stuff but when i my aha moment, I guess, was when I really realized that all those questions that I had that I most likely would never be able to get answered didn't really matter in the long run anyways. Um, that that was my moment that I was like, okay, well, I just have to take responsibility for what happened, and it is what it is, and now I'm going to make the best of it, you know, and so it, it took, I feel that the grieving process was a little bit um, rush. Um, you know, I do admit most people take a little bit longer to adjust to a diagnosis. I feel that what I had been through before with the necrotizing fasciitis and, you know, when I went to septic shock, my blood pressure was in the twenties. I like 70% of people with necrotizing fasciitis die from it. I was nice to you for so long. Like, I feel like I had been so much closer to death, so to speak, um, that an HIV diagnosis, I knew I wasn't going to die from. Um, I knew at least that amount about HIV that wasn't going to kill me. Um, so I feel like breathing process becoming a little bit easier. Um, but you know, I I think a lot of it came down to when I was on my way home uh, on my way home on my way to work after being diagnosed. You know, I really did contemplate you know suicide and whether it was the right thing to do or not. And I kind of sat there and, and, you know, I was crying and I thought to myself, you know, Hey, you've been through a lot more before, you know, that, you know, if you can survive, you know, this, all this crap that's happened with my leg, I can definitely survive, you know, the thoughts of other people, you know, I'm not going to die from this. If I take my medicine, I'm fine. You know, but I think it was a combination of those things with the support group, with uh, Maria and other advocates videos that I saw during that time. Aaron's was actually one of the first videos um, that I saw, you know, when I was that whole year process, um, you know, because it was a process when I was on medication in the beginning, stuff like that. I started to reach out more. First, I saw Maria's videos, and then I started to see more people's videos down the line. And, uh, you know, Aaron's was one of the other advocates I saw in the beginning, the first couple of years of my diagnosis. And I think things together, um, plus what I had already been through really helped me reach the aha moment. I can't say put it like a pin on it, say there was one certain point um, or one certain day, so to speak, um, because it was you know, a lot going on during that time. But at the same time, it was a, it was a combination of all those things that kind of just made it click and when exactly it happened, I'm not sure, but it ended up happening. And, 
you know, I decided to kind of change things for the, for the better, so to speak, and kind of just accept it, roll with it. And, and, yeah, hopefully share my story so other people can uh, not end up in the same boat or if they are in the same boat already and living with HIV that they can hopefully, uh, handle a little bit, uh, easier, you know, knowing that they're not alone. So Josh, one of the things that I'm interested in, um, is, you know, you, you, you being diagnosed and then, you know, the videos and things you saw out there, some of those individuals were very much different than you in that here you were heterosexual guy. Um, and so your story was very much different. Was it, did, was that challenging to find information from people who, you know, cause sometimes we want information from people who are like us, right. Who are, our stories are similar. And so I, I can't, there's not a whole lot of, 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 uh, uh straight guys, straight people who are out there really talking about HIV. Was that challenging? Um, yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, I tried to find advocates, um, heterosexual male advocates. I, you know, tried to find, you know, look up straight men, HIV, um, what I could find. And I really couldn't find anything um, as far as uh, I know of a couple straight advocates now, of course, now that I'm a little bit more into it and advocacy and everything but at the same time i couldn't find like really much on youtube or facebook or anything like that at the time and so it was difficult because as humans we want to naturally relate to other people and we want um not that somebody's uh, story can't resonate also recognize that myself as a straight advocate i'm going to have less pull so to speak with you know, somebody that, uh, for example, LGBT youth, they're most likely going to connect with, you know, someone who's LGBT or um, someone who's, uh, the case might be, you know, someone who's of a certain ethnicity, they might connect with someone who's of a, their same ethnicity just because it's it's natural. You're going to say, okay, this person's like me in some way. Um, so that was difficult. Um, but at the same time, I think when I found Maria, I figured, hey, you know, she from the story share, she did contract HIV through heterosexual sex. Um, she's now with someone who's transgender and stuff like that. And at the time when I saw her videos and stuff, she identified as lesbian stuff. But my thing was like, okay, well, she contracted it through heterosexual sex, you know, so that we're kind of the same in that, in that sense, you know, and, and she was, uh, and one way I did relate as well is because she's Hispanic, she's Colombian. Um, and so, you know, I've always like, not on purpose, but like the majority of my past girlfriends have been Latina, um, Mexican or of Lat Latina descent. And so that was another way we kind of connected. Um, but I don't really feel, you know, that, um, that you have to find somebody that's exactly like you. You're never going to find somebody that has lived your story a hundred percent or lived your life a hundred percent. You might be able to connect with certain aspects of it, um, you know, but at the same time, I think it's, it's a matter of kind of keeping an open mind and reaching that point to say, Hey, doesn't matter how someone got to this point in their life. We're all in this. It doesn't matter if someone was quote unquote promiscuous, a word that I hate now, but you know, if somebody was promiscuous or somebody was, you know, in a monogamous relationship, and they just had a one-time thing. And next thing you know, they end up positive. Like for me, it took reaching a point of, Hey, it doesn't matter obviously I'm not going to find somebody a hundred percent that's lived my story, but the important part isn't about finding someone who's similar because one thing that we have in, in common is having HIV. That's the only thing that matters that, you know, and similar, but I had tons of friends in the LGBT community before this. Well, like I, I didn't really look at it like a, uh, yeah, I was, I've always been an ally for the LGBT community. I didn't think it was, uh, something out of this world to go and find somebody and their story is a little bit different because I just wanted someone to connect with that was living with the same thing as me and and that really uh, helped it it opened up my mind and helped me diversify even more um, to really realize that hey it's we are all in this together it's not just a cheesy saying but it's really the truth it doesn't matter how someone reached it I'm not here to judge someone or you know if they were in you know, a hundred orgies last week or 
relationship. And next thing you know, they said a one-time fling doesn't matter to me. And in the end, you know, no one deserves to have this virus. And, and for those of us that are in the position that we do, then it's the best thing to do it. We can support each other and, and move forward. That's yeah, I totally agree. One of the, um, one of the ways that I think you've really, I mean, obviously, as a person who identifies as heterosexual, that's, you know, uh, new and different, I think. But you've really made it a kind of your passion to write about and blog about um, things pertaining to mental health. Um, and so can you speak a little bit about why that was important to, to have that as a platform and kind of what response you've had from the community? Yeah, definitely. I mean, mental health, I mean, I feel that my personal journey with depression um, kind of started during my teens. I had uh, five years of substance abuse with crystal meth from, you know, the time I was 12 to the time I was 18. Um, and that's a whole other uh, aspect of my life. But I feel that, you know, when I got off of it, I kind of quit cold turkey and was I completely quit it, and I feel that that kind of started the, you know, planted the seed for the depression. Um, after that, everything through with my leg, that also contributed to the depression. Um, and I read, and especially with my HIV diagnosis, on top of all that, I had already been through a lot, and so I suffered mild symptoms of depression, and everything, but I didn't really recognize how serious it was when I was with my most recent ex-girlfriend um we were going to have uh kids together and when that happened she actually had two miscarriages one year after the other and the first time she had a miscarriage it really sent my depression into a spiral um and i had been living with hiv for a couple of years at the time yeah maybe three three years or so and so when she had the miscarriage it really like that to kind of like confirm a lot of the things my mind was trying to tell me when I was first diagnosed that, Hey, you're never going to be a dad. And, hey, it's never going to happen. Obviously things I know not to be true now, but, uh, upset my depression. Um, she also, uh, was struggling with, uh, mental health issues with, uh, different, you know, personality disorders and different things of that nature. And so that it really, I was involved a lot more with mental health because I was experiencing, um, Fear, my challenge, my gambling addiction, because of my mental health issues, because of the depression, um, and dealing with her with mental health issues, it really made me realize that hey, you know, mental health is a very serious thing that's not being talked about. And you know, I tried to look around for you know depression support and just kind of gotten people's general perspectives when you say hey, you know, I suffer from depression, you know, or and and just to kind of see people's reactions and how it wasn't um, really what I would expect to be supportive. You know, I decided to kind of take the reins and say, Hey, I'm going to start speaking up about this and share my story because I felt like when it came to HIV, I could talk about it. Um, there wasn't any shame, so to speak, when talking about HIV, but when I talked about mental health, it was like, you know, people didn't want to talk about it. Um, similar to HIV, but I just felt like it was hard for me to even talk about depression because people look at it like, oh, I feel so sorry for you, like, you know, or, oh, you know, you'll get over it, you know, you just need to do this, you know, and so I was just like, okay, well, you know, that's not how it is, like, people don't really realize how big of an issue it is, and then when I saw, you know, the rates of suicide, and I dealt with personal experience with people very close to me attempting suicide, and and things like that, I was like, you know what, this is a big epidemic. And when I tried to reach out for support and try to get into the mental health system here in the U.S., um, it's an extremely broken system. Granted, we are a lot more fortunate than many other countries, I'd say. But the fact of the matter is, if you can't afford mental health, um, you know, treatments and, and uh, therapy sessions and all that kind of stuff, uh, many times you're not going to be able to get that support and there are free, you know, services and stuff like that. But a lot of times you're getting doctors that are not the best of the best, you know, you're getting what there is available, you know, so we definitely have a big broken mental health system. Um, and that really encouraged me to start speaking out and say, Hey, we need to change the system. We need to change the way that we look at depression and, 
and other mental health disorders and stop this, you know, you know, it's like when people say, oh, that person committed suicide. Okay, that person didn't commit suicide. Suicide, you know, it's not a criminal action, you know, so saying the word commit, you know, it's a politically correct term or whatever the case, but, you know, it's just the whole perspective of how we look at mental health and, uh, you know, we kind of place blame on people and, and uh, kind of just say, hey, suck it up, buttercup, you know, that's, yeah, it's like when a guy is growing up and they're like, hey, you don't cry, be a man. You know, just stuff like that. It's like, you know, I, I want to change that and show, hey, there's no shame. There's no shame in crying and saying, you know, you feel overwhelmed or whatever the case. And, and uh, yeah, so my personal experience dealing with mental health as well as, you know, uh, several people around me and my immediate family and partners and everything, that, that definitely uh, propelled me. And, and the response to it's been very good. Um, you know, I think people uh, are excited that there's actually a conversation being had now about mental health. Um, I've had several people reach out to me on Messenger and email telling me, hey, thank you so much for talking about this because, you know, we, we talk so much about people starting on treatment and, uh, you know, adhering to their treatment, even if the U equals U and everything, that's all great. But at the same time, we have to address mental health at the same time because if we don't, then we're uh, kind of being counterproductive. We can't expect someone to adhere to medication daily when just going to the table to go grab that bottle seems like climbing a mountain. You know, we have to really address mental health in conjunction with physical health and overall health uh, and well-being in order for people to be, you know, successful. And and that's what I want to see. I want to see people, you know, we just live in a world, especially now with politics and stuff like that. I I try to watch the news as least as possible because that'll actually trigger my depression, you know, and just so I like thinking the whole world's going to end, you know, so I just sit there and I'm like, okay, I'll watch it like once a week, just so I know what's like updating what's going on, you know, but it's sad, you know, I think we just live in a world that there's not a lot of happiness and, you know, we just, there's just not a lot of people talk about, you know, when they are feeling down or, or recognize even what the symptoms of depression are. So, um, yeah, I think it's important and you know, I'm trying to do my best to put a little dent in it. You know, I know I'm not going to be able to do it all by myself, but you know, at least, at least I can do a little small part. Well, Joshua, I think you're doing a, an amazing job in um, bringing awareness to this, you know, this, this part of HIV or, or this, this, you know, um, men, mental illness. It's important because a lot of people, like you said, will cover it, but they won't focus on it. Now, I mean, somebody as intelligent, as you talk about it, um, it's important to uh, allow people to hear the story of your own and then, you know, kind of listen to it and relate to it. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was your um, your tattoo. I myself um, kind of have an HIV-related tattoo. I know in 2013 you were featured uh, in HIV Plus magazine about your tattoo, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I know it is featured on your website, PositiveHope.com. Um, can you just explain what your tattoo represents? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I got uh, two swallows, which swallows represented in the, in the past for sailors when they were close to land. If they saw swallows, um, they knew that they were close to land. So it was kind of the uh, signal of hope um, for people. Um, and that, for me, has kind of been the driving force of you know optimism and hope and and really thinking about hope from a different perspective, not as just a cliche word that we use, but as a lifestyle um, of always, you know, knowing that things can improve, you know, things may seem really horrible, but they can improve. And so that's what the swallows represent. They represent my journey. Um, one of the swallows is kind of, and they're both carrying the HIV and AIDS ribbon. Um, so one kind of represents its, um, you can see one's kind of upside down uh, and then one's kind of carrying through. So it kind of represents my journey from the beginning of not really knowing, you know, what to do and not really knowing how I was going to handle my diagnosis and kind of how I've grown and, and evolved through this process um, to a point where now, um, you know, I've accepted my virus and I've accepted it as part of who I am. Um, and so I just, I wanted to get the tattoo on a very prominent part of my body because, I didn't want to get it, you know, where it was like hidden, you know, where people couldn't see it. I wanted people to know and to kind of be a conversation starter. And, you know, some people will see my tattoo and they'll say, hey, what's that mean? You know, what's it about? And 
you know, let them know, hey, it's about my journey with HIV and, you know, I've lived with it for, you know, X, Y, and Z years and this is kind of my experience. Have you ever thought about getting tests, stuff like that? So it's been a great conversation starter, but for me, it was, uh, I kind of wanted to get it done to close, not close that chapter of my life, but kind of um, make peace with that chapter of my life. And I feel that that definitely um, happened. Um, at the time when I got this tattoo, I had just um, gotten off of a triplo, which works for some people, but for, in my own personal experience with a triplo, I had horrible, horrible side effects and it was really a rough uh, year and a half of me taking it and everything. And so I, I felt like I had been through a whole nother process with that. But with this tattoo, I felt like it kind of brought a close to that chapter. I mean, around this time, I changed medications to a different uh, medication. I uh, kind of took control of my virus a little bit more and I started to branch out and advocacy more. So, yeah, that's kind of what my tattoos meant to me. And, you know, it's an important part of, uh, you know, important uh, image that represents, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, kind of sums up my story of, you know, hope that throughout everything, you know, there is hope and there is a, a better tomorrow. You know, it's just a matter of us uh, making it uh, and, you know, really realizing that, uh, that we are, you know, we can't accomplish anything that we want in life. And also, I, I think partly I'm an aviation buff as well. So, I mean, in the future, I want to uh, get my pilot's license. It's a little bit of an issue right now. I'm fighting the FAA to try to get my license because of my HIV status. However, at the same time, you know, the birds uh, kind of represent that flight too. And my dream, you know, ever since a kid, I've wanted to become a pilot. And they kind of represent my dream in a way as well that, you know, one day, despite my HIV status, you know, I will be able to be up in a cockpit and flying and that freedom of flight and everything, you know, so it's kind of a combination of all those, uh, all those things that make up the representation of my tattoo. Cool. Well, I think it's a beautiful tattoo and people can see it on your website, positive hope.com. Um, I know there is uh, actual pictures there and then your banner is also kind of a simulation of that, which is beautiful. I want to, uh, real quickly take a quick break and play some positive messages from rise up to HIV. And you might hear some, you might hear a familiar voice here. So, Josh, hold on for a few minutes with us, okay? Cool. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Alicia. Some call me Lovely or Healed Lee. In 2001, I was diagnosed HIV positive. And, you know, I had an option. Allow that diagnosis to overtake my life or I overtake HIV. And that is exactly what I did. I took a stand. I took a stand to know that I am healed, that I am prosperous, that I am a beautiful and loving person, and I deserve to be loved. HIV does not define me. I define HIV. I'm happy, I'm inspirational, and I am vibrant. I love myself. And I encourage you that if you received any diagnosis, if you received any terrible news, take a stand, know who you are, and continue on your path to greatness. I encourage you to stay happy. Hey there, I'm Josh, and I've been HIV positive for over four years, and this is my pause message. Yeah, I bet you think you know how this story is going to go. Well, I'm going to do my best to show you how I've learned to see the positive and being positive, no pun intended. I'm healthier today than ever before because I've chosen to make my physical and mental health a priority. I'm happy to share that I've been in a mixed status, serodiscordant relationship with my HIV negative girlfriend for almost two years. We've learned that having a healthy and happy HIV free baby is more possible today than ever. And I currently have a set plan of action as I'm working towards a pilot's license. Believe me, when I was first diagnosed, I didn't think any of that was going to be possible. You see, our generation has an opportunity today that millions before us never had. We have an opportunity to live. And believe me, I know it's a hard journey. There's no doubt about that. But know that life was never promised to be easy. Learn to separate who you are as a person as opposed to what the virus says you are. It's not the virus, but what you do with the virus that counts. Will it define you or will it refine you? That's a question that only you can answer. Thank you. 
And there you have it. There's your positive message from Josh Middleton. Josh, um, one of the things you spoke about there and before we took the break was um, your diagnosis and, and you being positive is affecting you getting your your license for being a pilot. Can you explain how that is affecting that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as far as with the U.S., uh, you have to – they do allow positive pilots to fly. Um, however, you have to pass uh, what is called a – neurocognitive screening um i mean it's it's simply put it's pretty much an iq test um to make sure that everything is fine for you to mentally be able to fly and handle everything that comes along with that um and you have to get that done uh for a there's three different classes of, of medical so once you get your pilot's license that never expires what expires is your actual medical um and depending on uh, your age and everything like that, you know, it, it's different and what uh, type of plane you're going to be flying and stuff. So pretty much how it works is, you know, your third class medical is for a private pilot's license. Not everybody has to go for a neurocog screen. Um, but if you're living with HIV, um, you get what's called a special issuance and you do have to go for it. Second and first class, that's commercial. You're flying for money. And first class, you're flying, you know, like for the jetliners, you're flying a lot of people. Um, so those ones, everybody has to get the neurocog screen. But I, right now, just want to go for the private pilot's license. And pretty much I'm fighting with the FAA because I was not able to pass the neurocog screen, which very much surprised me because I said, you know, hey, I'm like pretty sharp, I feel. You know, I had... Uh, it's pretty much so strict that even the person who invented the test says it shouldn't be used um, to um, uh, qualify pilots who want to, you know, who are positive or or other mental health conditions that shouldn't be used um, for uh, determination if somebody's going to be a pilot or not. Um, but they, the FAA is very conservative. You know, they obviously are very safety orientated. So I'm kind of battling the FAA right now to say, well, hey, what is the medical evidence that you have to prove that when someone's undetectable and is adhering to their treatment, what is the evidence that you have to prove that it has an effect on that person's brain in a significant enough manner that it's going to affect safety issues? And pretty much the FAA is, you know, is kind of pushing back and just not really responding. Uh, and then a lot of HIV legal organizations and stuff like that won't take on the case because it's such a niche thing they look at it like well how many people who are positive really want to become pilots you know so that's the unfortunate part that i'm kind of in is just this kind of limbo of a fight in the faa about it because i do plan on retaking the cog screen however it's a four thousand dollar gamble um and insurance doesn't cover it and so it's like okay i go pay four thousand i take the long version and I take a chance. And pretty much the neuropsychiatrist I met with before told me, well, you know, 60% of people who fail the first one fail the second one. So it was kind of like, well, don't even take it then, you know, because your chances are so slim of passing it. But I'm not giving up. Um, you know, I know it's a niche thing. Not everybody wants to fly. Um, but for me, you know, I definitely um, – I definitely want to. I understand the whole safety standpoint. I'm all for that. Uh, I think safety is extremely important when flying. But at the same time, I feel that, uh, you know, when there's not medical evidence or not really a lot out there to show how it affects the brain with an undetectable viral load, um, then, you know, the uh, just like the laws and, and everything with you know, HIV criminalization and many different things, that the laws and the regulations match the current medical science. And what the current medical science is, not what ifs, not, you know, okay, and, you know, distant, far out land, what might happen, you know, but, you know, what's the reality of what the evidence is in front of us. So, you know, it was a little discouraging because that was my dream since a kid. Like when I failed the test that day, I'm like, well, I don't think I'm that off, you know, and, but it's literally like, if you answer, like he goes, you're extremely accurate in all your answers, you know, but you took like two seconds. And I'm like, two seconds? So what do you want me to answer it, like, in a millisecond? Like, it takes time for your butt, your finger to hit the button, you know? I'm like, gosh, I mean, I I can't believe that you know, they want you to do it that fast. There's nothing that's going to happen in the air that you're not going to have at least a second. You know, I mean, it would be very rare. So, you know, that's kind of the situation with that. But 
you know, just pushing forward and, you know, I'll eventually get it. It's, uh, and now I even, I'm a dual citizen here and in Canada. So worse comes to worse. I can always go to Canada, get my license there because they have this same aviation standards as here. Uh, I could go there and get it. Uh, and because they have the same aviation standards, I could actually get my license transferred and get a U.S. license and just keep current Canadian medical. So one way or another, I'll you know find a loophole around it or you know, I'll continue fighting with them here. So it's uh, definitely not something I'm giving up on. Well, most of our listeners, uh, I know we've talked about it in the past, we're excited. We're actually going to be with you um, in Chicago and other health advocates for Healthy Voices. Um, real quick, because we're, we're wrapping up on time, what are you kind of hoping to um, to get at Healthy Voices? Um, what is Healthy Voices to you? Healthy Voices to me was it was one of the best conferences I've ever been to. It really gave me a lot of tools um, to be able to um, expand my advocacy. And for myself this year, what I really want to focus on is is expanding HIV advocacy across multiple platforms um, for those that aren't involved in advocacy, it's, it's hard to kind of understand, but when you're, when you're reaching out on multiple platforms to keep that, um, that mojo going throughout everything, you know, to continue Instagram and, you know, nowadays there's a million different things people use, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that. It's very hard to keep up and be able to keep up with, you know, everything you got going on in your life and really be able to provide, um, you know, support to everybody across all those platforms equally. Usually always one of them suffers, you know, like for myself, I know that Twitter is an extremely powerful tool and I try to post there as much as I can, but it's just, it's hard. It's a very fast moving thing. So healthy voices this year, I really want to, um, you know, reach out with other advocates, see what's working for them. Um, and really, uh, try to improve in that area. Um, as well as create, you know, last year the theme was create deeply rooted connections and with other advocates. And I think that's important as well. And that's something I'll continue through this year because, you know, you never realize how close we are to someone that, you know, even though it's not the same condition, but a lot of things that we have in similar, you know, someone who has diet, um, psoriasis or just different things of realizing that, hey, there's so many health conditions out there and we really have a lot more similarities than we have differences, um, especially as advocates. So I, I want to continue those deeply rooted connections and I want to you know, expand on multiple platforms and figure out how to do that a little bit better. And of course, I always want to uh, improve on, you know, videos and, and how I can, you know, Josh uh, Robbins got a great presentation last year on that. Um, and, you know, just kind of expand on that. So I haven't looked over the exact list just yet. I'm actually going to do that today. Otherwise, fill up and I'll get the ones I don't want but you know I, I, I'm going to look through everything today but I, those are the main things I want to focus on when I go to Healthy Voices and, and really expand you know just expand my advocacy across the board um, and be able to really strengthen it because I feel that uh, there's no matter how long someone's been in advocacy there's there's always more to learn That's awesome and uh, let our listeners go as we wrap up today let our listeners know if they want to find you online or they may do that uh, how can people get a hold of you uh, uh, to learn more about you or to find out more about your work uh, they can go to positivehope.com it's positive with a z z is in zebra so positivehope.com i'm pretty much on all the social media platforms under positive hope so if you go to facebook slash positive hope twitter slash positive hope instagram um, i'm on all those and then my uh Facebook page uh, for my nonprofit is Positive Hope as well, and my personal page is Positive Hope One. Um, so if you just go to positivehope.com uh, or my Facebook page, it'll have all the information for all the other links and stuff there. Um, so that's how people can get a hold of me, as well as my email, positivehope1 at gmail.com. So I try to make it as simple as possible because if I have different usernames and stuff for every single thing, then it would probably get really confusing for people. So that's the, the easiest way to go about it. So, uh, you know, just go on my website or on my Facebook page. Well, fantastic. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Josh. And uh, we will be seeing you in Chicago, everybody. Please be sure to check out um, Josh's work online, and we will talk to you soon, Josh.
Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Join us each and every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when we bring you your weekly Dose of Hope. You can join in the conversation after the show is off air. Going on Twitter at Radio, Aaron Laxton. While you're on there, reach out to I'm Still Josh as he brings your weekly HIV scoop. And check out Kevin Maloney with Rise Up to HIV. I encourage you, if you've not already done so, please contribute to the Positive Message Campaign. From each and every one of you who contribute and allow us to bring this show to you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And if you know someone who would be interested in coming on air, or you think there's something that we need to cover, please let us know. We're here to bring content that you need and you want. From each and every one of us over at Paz IM Radio, from myself and Robert Brining, have a safe and happy week. And until we talk again, stay positive.